Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. I made a mistake this week, y'all. I'm in New York right now, and I brought all of my microphone equipment because I knew that I had to record either yesterday or today. I'm recording this on Friday at 10.50 a.m., but I brought the wrong cords from my microphone. My laptop, the laptop I'd had since 2015, I told you it was dying. It won't even turn on at this point. Like it won't charge, it won't, it won't do anything. It has gone on to see the king. May it rest in peace, it served me well. And I did order a new laptop. I wasn't able to get the M2. I can order it now. It won't ship until the end of August and I'll already be gone to Ghana. So I have the new laptop, which is really, really amazing, but it doesn't have USB outlets. It has the new smaller one, I guess USB-C, I think that's what it is. But the cord that connects to my microphone is a USB. And surely I could run over to the Apple store and get a converter. I'm staying in Tribeca. Soho is right there. But that takes too much goddamn time and I'm on a schedule today. Do we have time for a quick story? Because you all have, have floored me this week. On Tuesday's episode, I told this story. I'm about to cry. Oh, my God. On Tuesday's episode, I told this story about my dad being frustrated that I didn't have an emergency contact in Ghana and how he took me to this event trying to make the ambassador to the UN um, my emergency contact, which God bless him. This is all connected, I promise. Many, many years ago, uh, when I was a senior in college, I lived in London. Um, I went to study abroad for the first semester of my senior year. I traveled overseas before I had a passport, but usually we went to the Caribbean. Um, I had never been to London or Europe. So I got this bright idea that I wanted to study abroad. My parents were all good for it. We you know, prepared me, packed me up, took me to the airport when it was time to go. And this is fall 99. So you could still like go to the airport with people and, and walk right up to the gate with them. And so we were standing at the gate and like I was a nervous wreck. And then they called for us to board the plane and I started crying hysterically. And my parents, bless their heart, I would tell the story. My father's not proud of what he did in that moment. He used some choice words. They were necessary in the moment because I got my ass on the plane, but it, it was kinda, he was kind of OD. But he doesn't like when I tell that story. So out of respect, I won't tell it. I couldn't fully articulate exactly why I was so upset. I just, I just, I wanted to go. I had, I had plotted and planned to go. It was something I really, really wanted to do. But in the moment, I was scared. I was scared. So I got to London. Everything was fine. And then one day I was crossing the street. And in central London, when you're crossing the street, like there are signs literally on the road that say, you know, look this way. They drive on the, on the left instead of the right. And I imagine a bunch of tourists must have got hit for them to go ahead and put signs literally at every stoplight in central London. So I was about to cross the street and I looked right. It's a car coming. Somebody grabbed me and pulled me back. Some random stranger. Sorry. It was just some random stranger paying attention. And I like to think like the car would have honked. I would have realized my error. I would have just ran across the road. It didn't come to that because someone literally like pulled the back of my coat 
and pulled me back before I stepped off the sidewalk. And even though this person had potentially just, you know, saved my life or um, prevented me from having, you know, a grave injury or something like that, um, I, it hit me in that moment that there was an ocean between me and the next person who really cared if I lived or died. And I just felt very alone. I mean, it was good for me because it was like, okay, like you're all you've got. So you got to figure it out and you can't, you know, make any forced errors. And you also have to just, you know, be vigilant about yourself. Like you have to take care of yourself. Someone will come see about you if something happens to you. Like my parents would get on a plane and come across the Atlantic if God forbid I needed them. But no one was coming to save me. Like, D, you got to save yourself. Fast forward. There was this other incident. I was really tiny for me when I was living in London. I've gotten down to probably like a size four. I didn't really like the food in London. It took me a while to learn to eat ethnic. Basically, I was, I was surviving off of a cone of fries with ketchup and mayonnaise and a falafel on the weekends when I would go to Camden. And at 20, you can kind of get away with some of that stuff for a length of time. I rode it out too long. And I was on the tube, the subway. I was getting off at, I believe, King's Cross. And London's tube goes really, really deep underground. And the elevators are very long and very steep. If you're from D.C., think about the Wheaton elevator. From the bottom, it looks like the elevator goes to the sky. I was maybe three-fourths of the way up the elevator and this like weird feeling came over me and I realized I was going to pass out. I didn't know how long I had. I remembered like trying to turn around to ask for help and I blacked out. When I came to, I was at the top of the elevator. This guy was holding me up. There was another guy, he had my purse. They were like, miss, miss, can you hear me? Are you okay, miss, can you hear me? I came to scared as shit because I'm like who are these white men why does this guy have my purse I'm trying to grab from my purse and I didn't have the um the grip to to even take it because I was so weak it was really bad and <sighs> sorry this woman this black woman <sighs> who was working in the ticket booth Somebody's West Indian mama. And I'm not crying because I'm sad. I'm crying because I'm reliving the moment, but also grateful that people showed up in the way that they did. But she saw me struggling. So she came over and was like, what's going on? They explained to her that like, you know, she passed out on the elevator and she started falling and I caught her and then her purse went flying. And the guy was like, I grabbed her purse and and he was like here and he was like I don't know if she needs an ambulance and, and I was like no no I'm okay and I was really embarrassed and then like, I finally took my purse and I was like thank you like I'm so sorry and they're like you don't have to apologize like you know we just are you okay like we don't want to leave you so somebody's West Indian mom I wish I remembered this woman's name it was literally like 23 years ago she told me I couldn't leave she took my purse and she walked me to the ticket booth with her was like, stay here. She went and got snacks and water. And she made me sit in the ticket booth for about 20 minutes until she was convinced that I was fine. And then she gave me her phone number and told me I had to call her 
when I got home. And I did. In my experience, when I am at my worst, when I am, you know, not able to save myself, someone has always shown up. God takes care of babies and fools. At 20, I was a baby. At 43, I might just be a fool or I might just be human. Even with your best intentions, being diligent and trying to avoid forced errors, trying to use common sense and good judgment and all of those things, like life just happens. So I'm very thankful in those moments that people have shown up. That said, I completely understand why my dad wants somebody, you know, not just that he can call if something happens to me in Ghana, but also that I can call. So, oh, now I'm about to lose it. Oh, on last week's episode, I told this story about my dad's concern about how I am the emergency contact. Like there is no one to call and, you know, it's just on me. So if something happens, call me. And obviously that answer was not good enough for my dad. Over the last week, not even week, since Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever that episode went up. Sorry. So many people have reached out to me. Offering to be an emergency contact. And I be on my superwoman shit most of the time. I'm like, oh, I'm invincible. I'm fine. What's going to happen? Like, I'm moving to Ghana. It's a different culture. It's a different continent. But, like, pound for pound, it's far safer than, like, America. Johannesburg, maybe not. Accra, it's fine. It's fine. I feel far safer there walking around. It doesn't have the violent underpinnings or fear that I feel in America sometimes. It just Maybe that's my ignorance. But also, I remember one time, I have so many stories today. When we go to Ghana, the money man comes to us and we exchange our USD and he comes with a backpack filled with money. And especially when we're there for a trip, it's like 20 to 25 people exchanging anywhere from minimum 300, maybe max out at like a thousand dollars. Right. And so when he comes to us and we're not the first stop of the day, he's showing up with at least the equivalent of 10,000 USD in Ghana CDs. And we're exchanging that with him. And I said to Davida one day, and I was like, has anyone ever robbed the money man? And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she was like, why would you ask that? I was like, because he's walking around with 10,000 USD in a backpack. And he doesn't have discernible security. No one's ever robbed the money man. Or does the money man carry a gun? And she was like, people don't really have like guns in the culture here. You don't really hear about like, you know, people fighting and somebody got shot. She was like, the population doesn't really have guns like that. She's like, people have knives. Like there might be a knife fight, but why would somebody rob the money man? And I was like, I repeat to you because he's carrying like at least 10,000 USD. And so she was like, no, that's not really, that's not really Ghana. She was like, somebody might scam you out of some land. If you leave your iPhone unattended, maybe somebody will take it. Which, by the way, like I've been out of, I've been out with friends. We'll be sitting at the table. You know how women are. Like one person goes to the bathroom, and then everybody's like, oh, "Okay, we'll all go to the bathroom." And I'll be like, oh, "Okay, like I'll stay here and watch the stuff." And they'll be like, "For what?" Like so, it doesn't get stolen. And they'll be like, "You can leave it. It's fine." I take my purse with me because that's just how I am. But people will leave like their purse, their iPhones, their whatever just on the table. And we come back and all the shit is still there. And I was like, try that shit in New York. That's not the point. The point is, Davida was like, no, that's not even like culturally. That's not even something people would think to do is to rob the money man. He's a working man. Why would you rob him? That's that makes no sense. 
And she was very baffled by it. And I was like, no, you grew up half the time in America. You're from Atlanta. And so she was like, I mean, yeah, in Atlanta, yeah. But in Ghana? Mm, really? Entirely. That said, when I'm in Ghana, I feel overall very safe. But things do happen. And I was very much putting on my like tough girl, black girl, strong black woman demeanor. And then when y'all started pouring in, offering to be my emergency contact, one, I had no idea this many people who lived in Ghana listened to the podcast. I, I really didn't. I check my numbers once or twice a month to make sure that, you know, I'm hitting all my goals and such. My contract is up in January. I want to make sure I'm hitting all my numbers goals so I can, you know, negotiate in the way that I need to. I don't really pay attention to like who's listening in what cities or countries or continents. I started doing a podcast because I needed an outlet. It turned into a lucrative business venture. And I like the money. Don't get me wrong, but I don't do it for the money. I started doing it for free. Um, and I would have continued to do it for free. Maybe not twice a week, but I would have continued to do it for free because I actually enjoy doing it. I just don't always have the time that I need to do it. That's it. I had no idea so many people in Ghana listened to my podcast. I had no idea so many people who were descendants of Ghana, first generation Ghanaian. I had no idea until this week. Like I knew, but I didn't know. But folks offered to be my emergency contact. Folks offered up their they daddies, their mamas, their grandmas, like if you need food, if you need shelter, if you need medical care, a parent to talk to. Um, folks have offered up themselves or their people, and I'm incredibly thankful. I've cried so many tears of gratitude. There's a very popular quote. It's something about like if you take a step forward in the direction of your dreams, the universe will meet you. What I'm trying to quote is much more succinct and elegant. There's something really to be said about trying to step out on faith and, and the universe, God, showing up to, to meet you. I am deeply appreciative. I, I feel loved. I really, really do. And I will take all of you up on your offers. And my dad will be happy. He'll have, he'll have the ambassador to the UN. But he'll also have some, some fellow fathers, <laughs> some mothers, some grandmothers, grandfathers, who are also you know glad to look out for somebody's child who done got the crazy idea to go cross the Atlantic and go live on another continent. <laughs> ah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I'm in New York. I came up yesterday. I love this damn city. I will probably end up moving back to this damn city. I was walking around yesterday. I took the train to Brooklyn to meet cousin Jason. We went to the Brooklyn Museum to see the Virgil exhibit. It was just okay. Like, if you're really into Virgil, it's worth going to see. But overall, I was just like, oh, okay, this was nice. Like, I'm glad I went because I would have had FOMO if I didn't. It just wasn't what I was expecting. I think because the last time I went to the Brooklyn Museum, I went to the Dior exhibit, and that was jaw-dropping. I was expecting that. I think of the Virgil exhibit, and, and it didn't do that for me. I was hanging out in the museum store, though. And it's one of those things that I, I make a habit of doing. Like, if I pass by a museum, like, sometimes I'll just pop in to go to the store because I do like merch for the podcast. And I always want to see what other merch like people are offering. Color schemes, fonts, design. Not to like jack people shit, but just as like, you know, inspo. And to see 
what people are selling products for. So when I was in the museum shop for the Virgil store, he was selling coffee mugs for like $30. He was selling sweatshirts, not even hoodies, but like sweatshirts, I want to say for anywhere from like 75 to like 110 Just FYI, I'm not getting crazy ideas where I'm going to start selling sweatshirts for 110 But I was thinking about branding and essentially like souvenir selling because that's really what it is, is I've gone to this exhibit and I enjoyed the exhibit so much that I want to take a souvenir home. So I'm going to buy this T-shirt or this keychain or this mug or this hat or something like that. But I was thinking about like if you build a big enough brand, you can sell very basic things for a very expensive price and people are glad to pay it because they want to take home a piece of the experience. I don't necessarily want to sell y'all $110 sweatshirts, but I like the idea of creating something that is consistently good and so impactful that people want to take home a tangible piece of it. That's the idea that I'm really drawn to. We left there and then we went to my favorite spots in Brooklyn, Peaches Crab. I'm obsessed with that place. I like really like bowls of food. Bowls of food are like happiness heaven for me. Like I love to eat out of a bowl. So they have like this amazing salmon bowl with like peppers and Korean rice. And it it just, it brings me joy. So we did that. And then we ended up going to some Afrobeats party uptown museum of the city of New York. And the full museum was open um, for free, no less. and, And there was a bar. So we had a good time. And then we ended up at Corner Social. Yo, this is my life in New York. I leave the house at like 1.30 and go bopping around and don't make it back till midnight. And I love it. And I love it. That's also my life in D.C. That also just might be my life everywhere except L.A., which is probably why I left. Okay, yeah. But yesterday was a 10-day. I saw him twice. We had lunch right after I got here. He came and met me uptown at the other museum. He got along with my friends and like exchanged numbers at the end of the night. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. I'm not going to stop it, but I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know. There's so much going on. Many of you have tagged me in conversations about the Brooklyn pastor that did get robbed. I told y'all last episode that there was lots of information that could come out. I wasn't going to be the one to spill it just because of how I know it. I'm learning in my advanced age and in my middle age that everything I think doesn't need to be said and everything that I know doesn't need to be told. And I told y'all last episode, I said, I don't need to say much. I say the internet is undefeated. The internet will do what it does and did. Information did come out in the New York Times, no less, about his previous prison sentence. He served a bid for five or six years. Larceny fraud, I believe. I said something on the last episode about him going back to prison or back to jail. And many people picked up on the back too. And they were like, sis, what's the tea? It'll come out. It did. I couldn't remember for anything what he got locked up for though. But the New York Times told it. Another story came out. This is from um, the city.nyc. Is that the city paper? The Brooklyn pastor who said he was robbed in the middle of giving his Sunday sermon stole $90,000 in retirement savings from one of his own parishioners. A lawsuit alleges. There's another story about, remember that guy, the subway shooter? He shot up all the people on a train one morning. The police couldn't find him. He was sitting up in a McDonald's nearby. The bishop tried to go and negotiate that, but he showed up in a Rolls Royce in like a Fendi suit. He loved a Fendi suit. I don't necessarily care for the suits. That's That's just my version of taste. I'm not a big logo person like that. 
That's a personal choice. No shade if that's what you prefer. But I want to acknowledge his tailor though. The tailor is doing the Lord's work. I don't know if the bishop is, but the tailor does do the Lord's work. Can we go back to that story in the city paper or the city.nyc? It's not the city paper, but the city.nyc. They had additional details about the bishop that I think are worth noting. The bishop is upset that the media has been digging into his financial and criminal history. As, as reported by the city.nyc. I'm on the website now. They have a really long article about the bishop. It's about a thousand words. It's a long scroll, but an interesting read, a very interesting read. This is how the article begins. It says, quote, a Brooklyn pastor robbed at gunpoint of his pricey jewelry, lashed out at the media for digging into his criminal and financial history in the wake of the traumatic incident. The bishop says, quote, my wife has not stopped crying. My daughter has not stopped crying. He says, my members have not stopped crying. He said this at a press conference where he was patrolled by five members of the NYPD. He was standing outside his church. He said, quote, nobody's empathizing with my church. The city.nyc reports that at one point, at one point, tears streaked down the bishop's face and he described the helplessness he felt over his inability to protect his family and his parishioners. He says, I was looking at my daughter with a gun in her face, eight months old, and daddy could not save her because if I moved, a lot of lives could have been lost. The bishop urged that pastors, including those with criminal records, be allowed to legally carry firearms for self-protection. The bishop went on to say that probing into his finances reeked of racism. He said, quote, why do we always got to tear black men down? As soon as a black man has a tailored suit, he's a criminal. Now, bishop, 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 I don't think they think you're a criminal because you had a tailored suit. I think they think you're a criminal because you was locked up for criminal shit. I also think they thought you was a criminal because that that robbery looked staged. The deacon ain't move. That Bible was on his lap and ain't moving an inch. That man barely blinked. People with guns run up in the church. The deacon ain't do shit. Like, and I'm not saying the deacon should try to be a hero and try to and try to fight men with guns. That don't make sense. But the deacon ain't get on the floor. The deacon ain't flinch. The deacon ain't do nothing. The deacon act like he ain't see no people with guns. Did the deacon know those people? Did you get set up by the deacon? That's a possibility. These are all possibilities. I'm not saying the deacon did it. I'm saying the deacon ain't moving. The shit was weird. But that's why people talk about you might be a criminal. It ain't the suits, Pastor. It's not the suits. In the same article, most of this lengthy story is about the bishop's financial issues. There's a former parishioner, Pauline Anderson. That's the one we just spoke about. She said the bishop convinced her to put $90,000 of her retirement savings into one of his firms. The funds transfer was supposed to help her to buy and renovate a home despite her bad credit history. After the bishop got the money, he didn't provide any updates on the search for her house. He claimed he was too busy because he was campaigning at the time for Brooklyn Borough President. That's what the lawsuit alleges. In a text message that was submitted as an exhibit in the case, and again, I'm reading from the city.nyc. You can go read this for yourself if you're interested. The bishop told the woman that he considered money paid to him a donation unless it's attached to a contract. So the woman gave the bishop $90,000 and there was no contract? Oh, bae. Oh, bae. When contacted by the city.nyc, the bishop said he couldn't talk about the allegations. He claims they are fictitious. 
The city.nyc notes that the bishop has not filed any response in the lawsuit. He also told the city NYC that he has, quote, gained a victory in the case, but did not specify what that is. The case is ongoing. There's more. The bishop owes more than 260000 American USD dollars stemming from a 2009 Manhattan Supreme Court judgment over an unpaid personal loan also tied to a home purchase. We continue. The city.nyc does note that the bishop served five years in Sing Sing after being convicted in April 2008 of multiple counts of identity theft and grand larceny. They also note that a 2006 search warrant of his New Jersey home shortly after his arrest uncovered a stolen 9mm handgun and a bulletproof vest. Who was after the bishop? The bishop got a bulletproof vest. Identity theft and grand larceny? You need, you need bulletproof vests for that now? That sounds like white-collar crime. You need bulletproof vests for white-collar crime? I don't know. I just know about crime from watching The Wire. I grew up in the suburbs. When the city.nyc visited the bishop's current home, there's a picture of the home on the website. It's absolutely beautiful. The bishop does have good taste in homes. Beautiful home. Two stories. But when the city.nyc went to the home, taped to the front door, they found a notice of default on a $4.5 million mortgage for a property in Hartford, Connecticut. The reporters did a little digging. They found New Jersey court and property records show the big, beautiful home that we just talked about. That home is also tied to an ongoing effort to collect on a debt. Oh, Bishop. In May 2021, a judge in Bergen County Superior Court approved a judgment against the bishop for more than 335000 American USD dollars and dineros after a family-owned development business sued the bishop, saying he owed them money too. The lawsuit says the bishop fraudulently persuaded, that's a quote, fraudulently persuaded the New Jersey-based construction company to issue him a short-term loan of 126000 and then to accept a business check of 164000 The check bounced. And the months that followed, the bishop did not pay his debt. Oh, dear. The bishop got a lot of problems. I don't know if it's 99. I know the robbery ain't the only one. I wish the parishioners of the church, I wish them insight and discernment. I think there's enough stories out here about the bishop that they should be able to make some very careful determinations of where they praise their God and who they allow to lead them. Because the bishop, I I don't think that's it. There seems to be a, a long trail of, of fuckery and foolishness with the bishop. <sighs> There's more to come, possibly, maybe. There's a lot of stories to be told. I guess we need to talk about this Beyonce Khalees situation. I wrote about it on my, um, my social media page and folks are in the comments debating fiercely. Fiercely. People have many opinions. So in case you're not up to date on it. Wait, I'm sorry. My phone just like lit up. There's a Will Smith video. Hold on. I'm going to pause the podcast to go watch the Will Smith video. So we're current. Okay, I'm back. I just watched the video. Wow. After months of silence, I think four after the incident, the slap at the Oscars, Will Smith has spoken publicly for the first time. 
He released several statements back in March when the incident first happened, apologizing, expressing regret and such. But this is the first time that we have seen him apologize or make a statement since that time. So Will appears in this video. It's about four minutes long. He has on a hat. It's the logo for Westbrook. I'm reading this on the focus.news. Westbrook Inc. is described an American multimedia and entertainment venture company. The Smiths co-founded it to execute the family's global content and commerce business strategy. It signed a five-year first-look deal for unscripted content with National Geographic in 2021. Also, apparently people have been trying to buy the cat. So far, it does not appear to be for sale. Westbrook Inc. does not design apparel for the general public, according to the Focus.News. The Focus.News says the cap is likely an internal company product available only to employees. However, if you are interested, Westbrook Inc. is currently hiring. I have seen people criticize that there's product placement in an apology video. I don't know how I feel about that. It's not a big deal to me. Will looks scruffy. His eyes look the same way they did on... Remember Red Table Talk and, and everyone thought Will had been crying? And Will came out later and said that, no, I was just tired. They had a, they, they'd been up all night. And they had a plane to catch. He doesn't look as bad as he did in that video with Jada when they sat down to talk about um, her, what does she call it? Entanglement. Um, but he does, but his eyes do look a little weird. He looks very broken, for lack of a better word. It's not because he didn't shave his beard. The eyes tell it all to me. And also some of the things he said, which we're about to get into. So first things first, he did at length apologize to multiple people, one being Chris Rock. Uh, Smith said that he reached out to Chris to apologize and he got a message back that Chris is not ready to talk, understandably so, and that Chris would reach out when and if he was ready. Will Smith did address Chris directly and he said, I apologize to you. My, My behavior was unacceptable and I'm here when you are ready to talk fair. He also apologized to Chris's mother. He said he saw an interview with Chris's mom. I vaguely remember this interview. If I recall, Mother Rock had said something about, you know, seeing her child assaulted and she couldn't do anything. Will said he didn't realize how many people got hurt in that moment. He also apologized to the Rock family in total. Chris has a brother, Tony Rock, who's been very vocal. Tony Rock's about the size of Chris. But he was talking big shit after the slap because he was pissed. Somebody slapped his brother on stage and there, there was nothing he could do about it. He felt the way, which as the brother, completely understand, completely understand. But Will says that, you know, he and Tony at one point had a great relationship and he recognizes now because of his own actions that it's irreparable, which, yes, li- likely so. Tony Rock doesn't strike me as a man who's been to therapy. He says some crazy shit lately. Like Chris Rock has started dating a white, Chris Rock is now dating a white woman and Tony Rock made, I mean, he's a comedian too. So, I mean, take it in jest, but it also, I was like, of all things to say, why this? But he said something now, like Chris Rock must like really have money or really be famous or really be attractive because now white women are on him. And he was like, you know, white women don't really like us, but it was a very like Chris Rock has arrived because now he has a white woman. And I know there's like a longstanding joke about like black men who get on and then you get a white girl. It didn't strike me as he was making a joke like, oh, ha ha ha, like, you know, he's on now. It just, it, it almost struck me like commentary is like, 
he really believes his brother was doing better because now he has a white woman. Cringy. But yeah, Tony has had lots of choice words to say about Will Smith. So that relationship is, is likely a wrap. Will said that he spent the last three months replaying the incident and understanding the nuances and complexities of what happened in that moment. That sounds about right. He says that he knows he was wrong. There's been a lot of conversation about Will's behavior immediately after the slap. I mean, literally, like he slapped Chris Rock and then he walks back down the Oscar stage and he has this energy like he's feeling himself. Like he kind of flips his suit jacket a little bit, almost like he's an action hero. Like he doesn't realize he's just done something that's completely batshit. It's almost like he wasn't in reality when that happened. And then other stories have come out about what happened during the commercial break. Like Denzel went over to him. Tyler Perry went over to him. They were counseling him. Will was kind of starting to fall apart. Like it was starting to hit him, the reality of it all. But then, but he stays through the program. He accepts his Oscar. And then he goes partying afterward. And people were like, this is a man with no remorse. I would almost challenge that to say it's not that he's not remorseful. It's just, it's just something really crazy happened. And he didn't fully get how crazy it was in that moment. I am also of the opinion, and I have nothing, and I have no evidence to back this up. It's just based on like how weird his behavior was that night versus, you know, the 30 some odd years that we've, that Will Smith has been in the public eye before that with no incident. And then you slap Chris Rock on the Oscar stage. Something's going on with you. And I'm not making excuses for Will. I'm saying Will was wrong. I'm also saying I wonder if Will was on drugs that night. Just because his behavior was so unlike publicly who we've known him to be for 30 years, the way he reacted to Chris and then the aftermath of it, everything from having a breakdown during the commercial breaks where Denzel and Tyler Perry had to come console him to dancing it up like a wild man at the after parties, like holding the Oscar after you just slapped someone on national television. That didn't appear to me to be the behavior of a sober man. It's definitely inconsistent with the behavior we've seen from Smith for 30 years. He didn't address that in a video, though. Let's get back to what else Will had to say. He says that Jada never told him to do anything because that was a really big narrative. They were like, Jada rolled her eyes and then she must have told him to like go get him or something like that. And I was like, that's some real villainous shit. Go get him. She rolled her eyes. She was annoyed. And Will, Will, even if he had been told, go get him. Will's a grown-ass man. He's a 52-year-old grown-ass black man. Powerful black man. Wealthy black man. Even if Jada was like, go get him. He's still a grown-ass man. And be like, lady, you sound fucking crazy. I ain't slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. But Will takes full accountability for that. He says Jada did not tell him to do anything. That's something he decided to do for himself. He says, quote, I made that choice on my own. Jada had nothing to do with it. He also apologized to Jada and the family for the heat that he brought on everyone. They needed that. They deserved that because Jada has taken the brunt of Will Smith's slap, which is insane to me. I'm like, Jada sat there in the seat. She didn't have no food, but if she did, she would have just sat there and ate it. But Jada didn't do shit. But somehow she's been blamed heavily, heavily. She's corrupting Will Smith. She's bringing him down. She's forcing him to do that. She forced him to slap Chris Rock. He's a grown-ass man. Again, I repeat, a grown-ass, middle-aged, six-foot-something black man. Big-ass black man. She can't force him to do anything. He chose to do that shit and did. 
He apologized to the other nominees, including Questlove. He talked about seeing the look on Questlove's face. I think Chris Rock was announcing the award that Questlove and his team eventually won. And for obvious reasons, it was overshadowed by the slap. Will says that he hates disappointing people. It hurts him. He said in so many words that he is a people pleaser and not being able to please people really, really messes with him. And um, in conclusion, he said that he's doing his work, that he is doing his work. He's been doing it. He's continuing to do it. He said that he's deeply remorseful for what he's done. And this is the part that hit me. He says he's trying to learn how to be deeply remorseful and he's trying not to be ashamed of himself. And that just hit me so hard. I don't want to rehash some of my more, how do I want to describe them, public failings. Not that I had anything to apologize for. I felt like it at the time. But I felt like I'd let people down in like not being able to maintain my marriage. I don't think of myself as a people pleaser per se. But there was a point in my life where I was deeply committed to being a publicly as close to perfect as can be black girl. And it wasn't out of me thinking highly of myself. It was about being visible and not wanting to disparage, disrupt, promote stereotypes of black women. And there are a myriad of them, right? And when I had to announce my separation, and I mean had to, it started to interfere with my work. Um, and just like psychologically, like I couldn't post anything on the internet without like a hundred people asking me questions about like, where's your husband? Where's your husband? Where's your husband? Where's your ring? Where's your husband? Why are you in DC? Literally, I would go in public and people would start asking me about it. And I was like, oh, this can't like, it was just mental torture trying to pretend everything was okay. And even though it wasn't anybody's business that other than me and him, I had to say something in order to like breathe. But I was deeply ashamed. I was deeply embarrassed. I felt humiliated. And part of that is the reasons behind the, um, the separation and ultimately the divorce. There was a lot of, as we referred to the pastor earlier, fuckery and foolishness going on behind the scenes. It's a horrible feeling. But it really fucked me up because I remember what it was like to feel ashamed of myself. And people told me at the time, they were like, girl, it's a divorce. It's not murder. You didn't kill anyone. You didn't molest anyone. You didn't steal nobody's money. Like, you got a divorce. Like, it's serious. But, like, at the grand scale of, of moral and ethical outrage, like, it really ranks really low. It's a personal problem. Like, you haven't offended the morality of the country. I was like, I feel you. However, when you fuck up, if you're a halfway decent person and, and you feel like you fucked up in your life, the judgment of others pales in comparison to the judgment that you put on yourself. So part of the reason I got sort of wispy for Will is because I've been for obviously whole different reasons, but the feeling is the same. Will went on to say, and this also messed me up. I was boohooing by the end of this video. So whoever, so whoever wrote this script out, genius. Absolutely genius. They, just, they tapped into a lot of very common human emotions that a lot of people resonated with. So Will went on to say something like he was committed to doing better. And if you would just hang on, he promised we would be friends again or something like that. We'll be good again. We'll be friends again. We'll be good again. Something like that. And it was something about the hang on part. It's like you're asking us to just hang in there with you. But it felt like he was the one that needed to hang on. Like you just look at him and tell he's, he's been going through it. 
with the public shaming, the embarrassment, letting himself down, being that out of control and in public, no less. And it's recorded and replayed millions of times around the world. Millions of people have seen you at one of the lowest moments, most out of control moments of your entire life. Hang on. Like you said it to us and I wanted to say it back to him. I was like, you hang on. You hang on. Like you did a very bad thing, but it should not be the end of the world. One of the things that I always like to say on this podcast, and I say it for a lot of people, there is grace for those that seek it. Now, some shit is crazy and can't be forgiven. R. Kelly can go seek grace. He'll get none from me. Will Smith, there's grace for those that seek it. I have grace for him. He slapped somebody. Again, he didn't kill nobody. He didn't molest nobody. He didn't pee on nobody's child. I can find grace for him. I feel Chris Rock should, should do whatever Chris Rock thinks is best for Chris Rock. He said something after the video came out. He didn't address it directly, but he was at a comedy show. And he said something about, like, everybody wants to be a victim now. I pulled up Chris Rock's response. There's a, there's a story on Yahoo. They report, quote, Chris Rock references now infamous Oscar slap during a tourist stop in Atlanta just hours after Will Smith released an apology video. This is during Friday's performance of Chris Rock Ego Death World Tour. CNN reported that Chris Rock said, quote, everybody is trying to be a fucking victim. He added, quote, if everybody claims to be a victim, then nobody will hear the real victims. Even me getting smacked by Shug Smith. I went to work the next day. I got kids. Chris continued, anyone who says words hurt has never been punched in the face. Now, Chris, now, Chris, Chris, you didn't get punched. We, we watched that video a million times from as many angles as possible. You didn't get punched. You got open hand slapped, Chris Rock. You didn't get punched in the face. I'm sure it hurt because he, he like cocked back and slapped you and your head went all the way back. And I'm not making fun of him. I'm literally just describing what happened. He took the hit, though. Will is a big dude. Chris is a little dude. Chris took a step back. But Chris did not stumble or crumble. Brooklyn bread. I think equating Will Smith to Shug Knight is a lot. Shug Knight is currently locked up for 28 years because he got mad at somebody and, and ran them over. And I think backed up over him, too. Will Smith is not Shug Knight. Stop it. I don't think Will Smith is Shug Knight, but also I'm not the one that got slapped in the face. Slapped, not punched. It's a distinction. Chris Rock doesn't really talk about the incident. He mentions it here and there. I thought that as he got further along into his comedy tour, he might start making more commentary, but he's just taking jabs here and there at Will Smith. He said something when, um, remember the guy came on stage and tried to attack Dave Chappelle? Chris Rock had a quip then too. too. Something like, Will Smith, that you? Maybe not those words, but something along those lines. But Chris Rock hasn't said much in detail about Will Smith. He hasn't done like a sit down interview or even like at length during his comedy set. He hasn't said anything. It's coming. I know it's coming. It just hasn't arrived yet. So I know we mentioned Khalees and Beyonce earlier today. I'll get to that on next week's episode. And yes, I know we still got to talk about the Carisha Please interview. It's on my mind. I just can't fit it in with all the other stuff that's going on. My bad, my bad, my bad. So I know a bunch of y'all watched it and was like, WTFD must discuss. So we will, I promise. But y'all know my life is crazy with this Ghana move and it being pushed back. And then, you know, now I'm in New York, which I can't get shit done when I'm here. Not when I'm visiting. Not everything, but enough. And we'll be back next week, later this week. I have no idea when this is going up. With more thoughts, maybe some prayers. Because some folks need some. Will Smith, Bishop, Chris Rock. 
I'm talking to you. All right. Talk soon. Bye.